Um, I was studying this passage prior to the Gazette coming out, and then somewhere late this week, um, Josh asked me to cover a p- chapter from First Peter, and the Gazette came out that we're studying First Peter on Wednesday nights. So um, I'm, I wasn't intending on taking someone's chapter, but I had been in this chapter earlier this month um, as well. So appreciate. <laughs> Uh, the warm-up, I guess, for two Wednesdays from now when we open up First Peter. So, um, Also, I'm really happy that I have a couple guests here this, this morning. Dre, you all had met, met Dre previously, but he's back for his third visit, um, which is nice. We're happy to have him back. And then Corey and his girlfriend Angelina are here. Corey will be working for me beginning in June uh, when he graduates from East Stroudsburg. So I was glad to, he told me at one point he was looking for a church, and then I invited them here this morning. They drove 35 minutes, sort of, to get here, so be kind. Uh, They had a long day already. Um, And following the meeting this morning, um, there is lunch downstairs, and I heard the kids are really excited because we actually pulled out the uh, chicken McNuggets uh, for the kids, so um, (laughs) I guess some adults may be excited, too. I don't know. First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one. We're going to look at a couple passage, a couple verses here, and then I think we're going to look at some verses in the Gospel of John and Romans and in Ephesians, um, and see where we uh, where we go from here. First Peter chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to the great mercy, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with him that is inexpressible inexpressible, and filled with joy, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And the Lord ought a blessing to the study of our word this morning. Um, as you are, are aware, probably aware, um, the Bible is not um, an academic book. Like some of you are, are studying uh, engineering or accounting or programming or art or physical therapy, and you have uh, books that are subject matter um, specific. And they're academic in nature, and they're progressive, and you go from chapter 1 to chapter 10 and things like that. The New Testament is very much a, a revelation of God's will in using men inspired by him. And so this letter is written by Peter. That's why it's called First Peter. Peter is one of the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples that were called specifically by the Lord Jesus. And he was um, one of the early leaders of the church following the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the roles that the Lord used him in was in writing about um, and writing to uh, the Jewish people who had trusted in Christ 
because they had witnessed his death, burial, resurrection, had heard the teaching, um, and they were somewhat persecuted because of their conversion and scattered about the Middle East, if you will, for lack of a better term, Asia Minor, that area. And so Paul is actually writing this to a bunch of former Jews who were now believers and followers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're all scattered. So it's not written to a specific church. It's written to a group of people. Um, Of course, as um, the Lord caused it to be included in the Bible, we understand and recognize that it's also relevant for us today. And one of the themes of of this particular uh, letter to the to the people that are scattered is this idea of suffering. Uh, we're not going to get into a lot of it today. That's 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 not the point of my message. But because they were scattered, they were suffering. And um, one of the the messages or one of the lessons that Peter's um, uh, relaying to them is that your suffering now is minor and it's temporary, but there will be glory for eternity and permanent. And so there's this reminder, this this focus on the eternal as an explanation for what they were going through today. And it's important to recognize that because this is not written to a general population. It's not written to everyone in in Asia Minor. It's written to those that have already placed their trust um, in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. So that's a little bit of a background for this. But if you go back to verse 3, so the introduction is in verses 1 and 2, and it introduces who Peter is and to whom uh, he's writing. And it's helpful to know, but I'll I'll leave that to you to read. But the first um, verse in verse 3 that we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to stop there for a moment because there's a lot of truth that's contained in those first Ten words, whatever the, the number happens to be. First of all, we, we see the full title of our Lord. Sometimes we talk about our Lord Jesus. Sometimes we just talk about Jesus. Sometimes we talk about Jesus Christ. But here what we see is this in full, the fullness of his name uh, given to us in this particular verse. The Lord Jesus Christ. And let's, let's pick the easy one for a moment. So Jesus, which um, um, Mary... And Joseph were told to name him Jesus, and there was a reason, for he shall save his people from their sins. So it's a, it's a um, derivative of Jehovah saves. Jehovah saves, or God saves. So the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, was, was named. His parents were told to name him Jehovah saves, or God saves. And so the name Jesus not only reveals his purpose for coming to earth, but it also is his earthly name. And we're reminded of the fact that the eternal Son of God took on flesh, right? And that's, we just got finished, although it's February already, which is mind-numbing, but we just got finished celebrating Christmas, right? And while the date on the calendar is something that we could, uh, is arbitrary perhaps, the, the event... The event is a celebration or a remembrance of the fact that the, the, God, the Son of God, part of the Trinity, was born a baby in Bethlehem, right? Um, and we, where there's lots of things that, that are, it's, um, there's lots of evidence to this. Uh, there's lots of historical facts associated with that. And it's also the fulfillment of dozens and dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament. So Jesus is a reminder to us of the gift from God. Uh, that his, his co-partner, if you would, in the Trinity, the Son, would take on flesh and be born a baby. Um, his name reminds us of the purpose for that birth, that he would save his people from 
their sins. The birth accomplished, I'm going to say this as reverently as possible, his birth accomplished nothing for our eternal salvation. Had he just lived a good life, a great life, even a perfect life, but died at an old age from this awful flu that's going around or something like that, his death would have been ineffective for our eternal security. He had to take our place on the cross. The cross was a place of punishment. And that's really what the Christ, the, the, the name Christ is meaning in, the, in this title here. It's the Greek version of the Messiah. We all, we all recognize the word Messiah, but that's the promised Savior, the anointed one, God's chosen one that would come to earth and would resolve the problem that exists between a holy and just God and fallen and depraved sinners. And so as, as this name is unfolded before us and we're reminded of the, the baby born in Bethlehem, the reason he was is that he's the anointed one, that he would then take his place on the cross of Calvary between two crooks. And he would be there not because of his own sin, but because of my sin and your sin. And he would shed his blood to satisfy a holy and just God. God, God in his infinite wisdom said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so this eternal, infinitely valuable son of God who took on flesh would bleed so that God would be satisfied in those that came to him for forgiveness of his sins. Because God is just. We'll look at that later. He can't just forgive sins. He has to be satisfied so that he can forgive sins. Or he wouldn't be, um, he wouldn't be just. And then the word Lord, I think we can probably get a pretty good idea. We don't, you know, those of us that were raised and live in the United States, which is, which is most of us here, we don't use the word Lord. It's not part of our um, culture. Uh, we don't have dukes and duchesses and princes and princesses, and uh, we don't have these royal terms. But the idea of Lord is someone who has authority over us, someone that has um a position of authority over us, really. And if you, you know, in today's day and age, in today's day and age, um, I'll pick on Corey for a second. When we were, we had lunch and we're walking back from lunch and we were talking about the job and he goes, so who is my boss? I said, well, do you remember asking me that? I said, well, that's a good question. It's not really how we're organized. Like we don't really have bosses. It's I don't know how it all works, but we don't fall apart either. Cameron calls me boss, and he should regularly and often, but I'm not really his boss. Actually, Wendy's his boss, technically. But um, like, we don't have that power structure in our firm. Like, We work together as teams on engagements. And so even, even today, and children have, sadly, not our kids. Our kids here in the church are, are really pretty well behaved. Um, you know, children don't obey their parents as much as they should. And employees don't obey their employers as much as they should. And all of us probably don't obey our government as much as we should, especially when we're on I-78. Um, you know, but the idea of Lord is that he is over us and he has authority over us. And in some ways he owns us because he created us, right? We created us, number one. And then number two, we, we get new life from him. I appreciated that new song we sang about the revival. Like we were dead and he gave us life for those that come and place their faith and trust in him. So this title, Lord Jesus Christ, reveals so much about who he is. He's the son of God that took on flesh. 
He's the chosen one who went to the cross for us. And because of that, he's also the owner, the boss, the authority over us as well. Again, for those that are in the same situation as the recipients of this letter, that the, the recipients of this letter, like myself, like many, most of you, have placed their faith and trust in Christ. And if that's the situation, then all of those things are true about your relationship with the Lord Jesus. Let's continue on. Blessed be the God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this, this second phrase here is, God has caused us to be born again according to his great mercy. So let's unpack a few of those things. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2. Sorry to jump around, but there's a couple of really good thoughts here. And I want to think about the idea of mercy. According to his great mercy. So God is showing the recipients of this letter and those of us in the same position as the recipients of this letter, God is showing them mercy. So what is mercy? Let's look at Ephesians 2 for a minute and then we'll talk about that. Verse 1 of Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked through the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirits that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So this passage both speaks about God's mercy and God's grace. And you'll remember from what we read in First Peter that he's causing us to be born again according to his great mercy. So what's mercy? What is the mercy that's being talked about here in Ephesians chapter 2 and by Peter in, in 1 Peter chapter 1? Well, in a very simple way, mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Last Sunday, it was last Sunday, um, on the way to, to um, church, I, I did the normal thing. I stopped at Dunkin' Donuts. Um, and um, there was like this much room for my car, and my car needed this much room on the corner. So I parked on the corner. I I had ordered ahead. So I literally ran in for like two seconds, three seconds, five seconds. I don't know. But literally like ten steps. I came out, and a parking authority car pulled up right behind me. So I'm sitting in my car waiting to get lectured. I'm not moving, and the car the car's just sitting there. I'm waiting to get lectured. I was really, like at one point I was tempted. Well, they're, they're not getting out. I'm pulling away, right? So finally, a woman got out, and she st storms towards my, you can't park there. I said, I know. I just ran in to get coffee. Well, why don't you move? I said, because you're sitting behind me with your sirens on. Like I wasn't going to pull away from a car with their sirens on it. So she goes, no, no, I'm just warning you, you can go. I'm like, okay. 
great. But that's an act of mercy, right? Like, she could have given me a ticket, which would not have been very nice. But she didn't. So that's an act of mercy. I deserved a ticket. I parked in a spot that was not meant for me to park in, albeit for less than one minute. And um, she showed mercy. That's what mercy is, right? And so what do, we de- what do we deserve? If God doesn't give us what, do we, de- what we deserve, what do we really deserve? So let's, let's take just for a minute, um, I hate to make you keep turning, but Romans chapter 3 for a moment. We're going to jump back to Ephesians 2 because there's some really got good thoughts there. But in Romans chapter 3, what do we deserve? Who are we? This is a different letter being written. In this particular case, it's being written to a group of churches in Rome. Again, they were believers. They were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were not part of the general population. They were people that had already trusted in Christ. And the book of Romans is a very methodical, almost legal document where it substantiates the guilt of mankind in chapters 1 through 3. Um, In chapters 4, 5, and 6, it talks about the... um, Price that was paid by Christ, um, and then it talks about our service as well. But in Romans chapter 3, as part of this establishing guilt, we read in verse 9, um, actually, let's just start in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. That's a pretty condemning statement. And yet, by and large, not by and large, it's absolutely true. Like, left alone, None of us want to obey God. We may be good at obeying God in some areas. We may be good at obeying God in a a number of areas. But by and large, we we prefer our own self-will over God's plan for our life. It's just universally true, and it's been true. And the Bible unfolds this, and we don't have time to to do this. Um, Ian Douglas and I were talking about dispensationalism on Friday night. It's something that we just do every Friday night. I wish, but it was fun to, to talk about. But one of the things about dispensational truths is that it proves through different parts of history how man failed. In the Bible, it talks about Adam and Eve. They were given one rule. Don't eat of a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One rule. And they couldn't keep it. And then the Jewish people wandering in the wilderness were given the Ten Commandments. Ten rules. And they couldn't keep it. And the history goes on. And then God gave them kings and judges, or judges and kings, and they couldn't obey them. And then God gives us liberty and freedom to believe in the gospel. And by and large, most in the world don't do that. So man, their history has proven that man over time does not follow God. None is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then it goes and gives some specific condemnations about our mouth, our feet, and things like that. There is no fear before their eyes. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And then look at verse 21. I don't know if you noticed, but when we were reading through Ephesians, and the first couple verses were pretty uh, depressing. It talked about being dead in the trespasses and sin. It talked about being... um, Consumed by just satisfying the lusts of our own flesh. In verse 4 then it says, But God, being rich in mercy. And here in chapter 3, verse 21, But now. One of the amazing things and one of the blessed things about the word of God and the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is that it begins, it has to begin with the condemnation of who we are. 
so many, there, there's a handful of people, um, you know, in the families in this church who are having um, the flu or Mahala, um, having this cancer diagnosis. And, and in order to deal with it, the first thing is to be diagnosed with it. You, you aren't given the right treatment until you have the right diagnosis. And so the diagnosis, both in Ephesians chapter 2 and in Romans chapter 3, is that none do righteously. None choose to follow God. But the diagnosis is, the, the great creator of all of us then says, but God, or but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Another, re, another way, God is going to show us his righteousness, and it's not by keeping the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were never meant to cause us to please God and satisfy his righteous claim. Because we had all, mankind had, always prove, had already proven in history that we can't do it. It was meant to be another tool by God to show us that we can't keep we can't live up to his standards because his standards is perfection. There's only one person that ever did. We talked about him in the beginning of 1 Peter, the Lord Jesus Christ, the very son of God because he is God, because he's the exact representation of who God is. He's his, the nature of God. Only he could satisfy God. That's why he had to be the anointed one, the chosen one. That's why he had to go to the cross. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, manifested apart from the law. How is it manifested apart from the law? By Christ going to the cross. By the very Son of God, Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, Christ, the chosen one, going to the cross, bearing our sin, taking our punishment, bearing our sins, taking our punishment, and completely satisfying God's wrath that was abiding on us because of our sin so that God could demonstrate his righteousness by forgiving us our sins. And it was all outside of the law. It was all in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God Verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. See, that's the kicker, right? God has done so much. He created us. He gave mankind numerous opportunities, as we've discussed in the garden, with Noah and the flood, uh, with the Ten Commandments, with judges, with kings, with prophets in the Old Testament. He's, he's attempted to work with his people in various and sundry ways, and yet they failed. God never failed. They failed. But now in Christ, like this, this culmination of his attempt to deal with the people he created is culminated with his sending his son and then his son going to the cross. This righteousness of God is available, but there's a caveat for all who believe. And that's why I said several times, like, the, the truth that, are contained, that is contained in this Bible is for a very specific audience. It's for those that have already placed their faith and trust in Christ. Like the things that we read, read in First Peter, it's true for those that believe. And the belief that's talked about in the Bible is different than believing that you and I would talk about today. 
like it, it's easy, you know, especially at Christmas time. You know, you drive through the neighborhoods, and lots of people have up decorations, and lots of people are celebrating holidays. And if you asked a lot of people, they might say, "What? What's this holiday about?" Well, this is when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? Um, they believe that, but that's not the same type of belief that's discussed here in the Bible. The belief and faith, the ideas go together. These two concepts are not just meant to um, invite an intellectual assent to something that is true. It is an appeal to your heart to not only believe that it's true, but that your life would change accordingly. That your life would change accordingly. Last night we had to go uh, to a client event, dinner at 7 o'clock in Hershey. Um, <laughs> so it was a little bit of a late night. And I thought I was going to take, um, I didn't want to stay on 78 to 81. I wanted to get off before it turned 81. So I got off, and the GPS said to go right. I'm like, that's not right. So I went left. And as I went left, <laughs> I almost never do that. Of course, it's also night on roads that I don't know. But I go left, and I'm like, why does the time keep adding to my GPS? Right? Why? And then all of a sudden, so I, I, I should have believed. I didn't believe, actually. This may not be the best example. I didn't believe I should turn right. But if I did, and I believed it unto action, that's what the Bible's talking about. So it, it's, it's easy, or it's one level, to understand that Christmas is about God's son being born a babe in Bethlehem. It's another level. The required level is that that belief changes everything. It changes everything. And the first thing that it changes is we have to go back to the beginning of this passage and we have to understand that no one is righteous. But it's not just this global no one. It's all of a sudden, Mike's not righteous. Mike can do nothing right. Mike is condemned. But now, the righteousness of God. Or if you go back to, go back to Ephesians 4 for a minute. But God being rich in mercy. So Mike is condemned. I can't do anything righteous. I can't do anything to please God on my own because God's standard is not... You know, if, if When we were in school, those of you that are still in school, if you got a 96 on a test, you'd probably be pretty happy. Most of you would probably be pretty happy. The problem is with 96 in God's grade book is that's not good enough. Neither's 99. Neither's 99.9. It's not good enough. God's standard is perfection. And because he's the Lord, he has a right to own that standard in our life. And so none's righteous. No, not one. But this God being rich in mercy, because of that, if we place our faith and trust in him, he doesn't give me what I deserve. He won't give you what you deserve if you place your faith and trust in what Christ did on the cross of Calvary. If you take the, the totality of his name as we looked at in First Peter, and we'll, we'll probably go back there in a minute, the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you own that, and if you identify with him and say, he is my Lord. He is 
Jesus, the one who saved me from my sins. And he is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who God prophesied about, the prophets prophesied about, the one who God promised, the one who God provided so that God could forgive me. If there's, it's not just an ascension. I grew up, as you all know, you've known, I grew up for 25 years. I, I spent most of that 25 years going to a Lutheran church, and I love that church. And I learned stuff there, but it was all up here. And it wasn't anyone else's fault other than my own. The problem with me going to the Lutheran church wasn't the Lutheran church. It wasn't the church at all. It was the fact that at that point in time in my life, I didn't realize that I was not righteous in the eyes of God. I was learning lots of stuff. I was learning the New Testament. I was learning the Old Testament. I was learning lots of stuff. But I hadn't learned that I was a guilty, vile sinner in need of God's grace and mercy. And when I learned that, all of the stuff that I learned at the Lutheran Church and everything else since then all becomes not academic, not intellectual, not, um, not intellectual, but a matter of the heart. I was at a board meeting for um, Moravian on, on Friday. And one of the, we've been through a lot of changes and some processes, and one of the deans said, you know, we've been through all these processes, but how do we make it stick? And how do we make it transformative? A couple people gave some ideas, and then finally I had my hand up, and I said, you may not, this might not answer your question, but I think it does if you think about it. I said, it's a matter of the heart. Like, all of these changes are only going to stick and are only going to be transformative if you buy into them. Anyone can follow a rule. Anyone can do something like obey, right? We all heard of the little kid who was told to sit down and he said, I'm sitting on, I'm standing on the outside, but I'm sitting down. Like I'm sitting on the, I'm standing on the inside, but I'm sitting down on the outside, right? Like we can all follow a rule, but if our heart's not into it, it's of no real value. And so God being rich in mercy, why? Because I deserved it. Because I was born in the U.S.? No. Because I was going to church? No. Because he loved me. We even sang about that um, on one of the courses. God loved us. That is the motivating factor as to why God sent his son. We all have heard, I, I, I'm sure we've all heard of uh, the most famous Bible verse probably, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? It's not because I deserved it. It's not because you deserved him. It's not because our, this period of time or this country or any other thing deserved him. It's only because God loved us. That's the idea of grace. We talked about mercy. Mercy's not giving us what we deserve. Grace, which is also talked about in, in verse 5, by grace you've been saved. Grace is God, God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy's not giving us what we deserve. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. None of us in this room deserved a Savior. 
None of us in this room deserve for God to send forth his son to be born a child to ultimately with the purpose of going to the cross of Calvary. None of us in this room deserved the creator of the universe who lived a spotless life, a sinless life, to be nailed to a cross, have his side pierced, and his blood flow out so that God could be satisfied when it, become, when it pertains to our sins. None of us deserve that. But God's grace, showing us his love, back to verse 4, because of the great love with which he loved us. That's the only explanation. There's no other explanation to why did God do this. The only explanation is because he loved us. He created us, and he created us for the purpose of bringing glory to him and spending time with him. Those of you that have read through Genesis recently would remember that when Adam and Eve sinned by eating from the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, um, it says like shortly after that that God came looking for them. He wanted to spend time with them. He created them to have fellowship. And our sin separated us from him. And so his love for us because of the reason which he created us and his love for us because of his very nature caused him to send his son. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. We don't have time to unpack that truth. But Christ's death on the cross didn't just save us from hell, didn't just, didn't just give us a ticket to heaven. There is a instantaneous and permanent transformation that takes place when you place your faith and trust in Christ, when you believe in him and what in the Lord Jesus Christ and everything that it means in that. Did, I, I think we sang sweetest name I ever, is that right? I mean, yes. I was trying to remember if that was today or some other time. But that name means so much. That name means so much. And when you understand the truth and you believe the truth that's contained in that name, it instantaneously transforms us that we have a relationship with God at that point. And it continues on. That we're made alive together with Christ. Trusting in Christ and having our sins forgiven is not about, oh, I can't wait till I get to heaven. Yes, those of us that have placed our faith and trust in Christ can't wait to get to heaven. But eternal life, life with Christ, begins at the moment of your salvation. That's part of what he's writing in 1 Peter. Um, let's go back to that because I keep referring to that. But part of what he's writing in 1 Peter is to this group of people that scattered around in their suffering. And he's like, don't worry about the temporary suffering because God has something permanent, eternal, that is far better. This idea of being born again that's in chapter 3 of, of 1 Peter, um, we, we, uh, we sang to um, one of the young youngsters this morning, happy birthday, and we talked about how many have you, right? And, and a lot of us know what that means, and it's, it's meant to ask ourselves, do you have that second birth? Have you been born again? Like, born again is a phrase that's commonly understood in the United States, but it's misunderstood normally. Like, it's meant to describe, well, they're born-again Christians, and they're Catholics, and they're Lutheran, and it's really not meant to be a distinguishment of who Christians are. It's meant to be the reality of what a Christian is. And... and 
it is necessary to be born again. Now, again, there, there's a lot to impact with, unpack with that, but being born again really means I want that new life in Christ. We were talking about in, in Ephesians chapter 2, that we're born to, to a living union with Christ. Because we can't get to heaven, we can't enjoy eternity if all we have is our physical birth. There has to be that second spiritual birth. And that second spiritual birth is not is nothing mystical. Like you're, you're not going to be like, oh, wow, I just oh, I felt it. Like it's not like electric coursing through your veins, right? It's, I believe that Jesus saved me from my sins. I believe that because I know I needed it. I was unrighteous. I lived unrighteously. I was dead in my trespasses and sin, as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says. I was all of that. But I understand what God's saying. I understand the mercy he's showing me, the grace he's showing me, the love he's showing me. And I believe that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, saved me from my sins. I believe that he was the Messiah, the anointed one, who would go to the cross of Calvary. And if you believe that, not up here, not because you read it today, but because you believe it in your heart and you want God to change you, you want it to impact your life. You have this new life. You have this new birth. That's what it is. Causes to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I talked a lot about the cross. We also know if you talk to most, most Americans, if you ask them what Easter is about, they're going to tell you that some people might say, well, it's a bunny thing. But, but if you talk to anyone that has read their Bible or listened to a couple messages, they're going to know that Easter is the celebration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection wasn't just that he defeated death. It was God's stamp of approval that he defeated sin, that he paid the price for you and me, and that because of that price that he paid, we can have peace with God if we believe him, if we believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the one who took our place on the cross of Calvary. We're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So that's, that, that's I guess we're going to have to end with, with that. But it's, a, it's an unpacking of, it's not even still the fulfillment of what um, salvation is or what eternity is, but it is a reminder that it's not about the here and now. Um, being a Christian, just as it was for the people that received this letter, they were suffering. They were undergoing persecution. Uh, there's lots of Christians today in Iran, Iraq, China, North Korea that are suffering persecution. In the United States, most Christians don't suffer persecution. We may get picked on. We may get bullied, but we're not really suffering persecution. But what God has in store for us is not about the here and now. For Israel, and we're still fighting about this today, for the Jewish people is the promise of land. And God is going to fulfill that promise to Israel at some point, where they will occupy the land as he promised in the book of Genesis. But that's not for us to, to um, um, invoke. It's God's, authority. it's God's promise, therefore God will take care of it. Our promise is spiritual. It's an inheritance that is imperishable. We all have cars. What happens to cars? They get old, <laughs> right? They fall apart. 
You have to replace parts. You have to replace tires. There's wear and tear. It's, it's what happens to houses. They fall apart. You have to repair them. You have to put a new roof on, a new HVAC system. Uh, you have to do all that sort of stuff. What happens to our bodies? They fall apart, right? Some of us need new parts. Some of us need new repairs. But they fall apart, right? Sister Jackie can tell us a little bit about that. And so can I, right? But what God has for us is imperishable. It won't spoil. It's undefiled. It can't be corrupted. It's unfading. Why? Because it's kept in heaven. And it's, it's not like, oh, I'm going to get some big house on a street of gold when I get to heaven, and God's keeping it for me. That, there is a promise of a dwelling place. We all, those of us that have placed our faith and trust in Christ, we're going to have a place to live. But the, the treasure that God is storing up for us, the inheritance that God is storing up for us, is really a promise that we're going to see our Creator, our Lord, and our Savior. And we're going to see him face to face. Part of the passage in, that we didn't get to in um, First Peter, Peter says, you love Jesus and you didn't even see him. Peter got to see him. And you remember, he not only saw him, but then he denied him, right? But he got to see Jesus. He's talking to people that have been scattered and didn't see Jesus and yet love him. None of us in this room saw Jesus in the flesh. But we will if you believe in him. And we will see him, we will see God the Father, we'll see the Spirit, we'll see the, tr the whole wholeness of the Trinity forever and ever and ever. And God is preserving that for us. For now, for today, for the here and now, for where the rubber hits the road, we're united together with the living Christ. We have a new life, a new birth, and we walk in this newness of life, not perfectly, not because we'll never sin again, but because we're forgiven, because Jesus has saved his people from their sins, because as the promised Messiah, he went to the cross of Calvary and took our place there. We have much to be thankful for. We have a great salvation for those that have placed their faith and trust in Christ. Um, I'm going to give thanks for the food as well. And just as a reminder, there is um, a lunch downstairs for those that can stay. Our Father, we're so incredibly thankful for the love that you showed to us. We're reminded of that in Ephesians 2 and in 1 Peter and Romans, that you loved us. Unworthy creatures, you loved us. And it's not just like this Valentine's Day love where you, it's an emotion or a feeling, and sometimes that comes and goes. But it's a love that gave your very best by sending forth your son to be the savior of the world. A child born in Bethlehem named to be the savior of his people with the sole purpose of going to the cross to die. The, the only person to ever be born whose purpose was death. And yet, Father, we know that there would be many that, knowing this intellectually, don't know it internally. And so we pray that as we ponder these truths, that we would make them our own, that we would digest them internally, believe them not just in our head but in our heart, and understand the truth and the depth of your love, and that we could 
agree with the words of that song that we sang earlier today, that though we were dead, we now have revival, revival in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Sunday school classes that have taken place. We continue to pray for the Murrays in Romania and for those among our midst that are not feeling well, we pray for them. And now we ask a blessing upon the food. We thank you for providing it. And we ask that you would use it to give us health and strength. In Christ's name, amen.